Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm very pleased to say that my guest in this program is Sebastian Barry, author of the Costa-winning novel The Secret Scripture, and most recently On Canaan's Side, which was long-listed for the 2011 Booker Prize. After trying to coincide with Sebastian over the summer, I eventually caught up with him to talk about the new novel before an event at Topping's Bookshop in Bath. Living by the sea in the Hamptons on Long Island, Lily Dunn is recollecting her life from the vantage point of her late eighties. When she takes up her pen to set down what she later calls her confession, Lily has just lost her grandson, who committed suicide after the First Gulf War. Many decades before, when still a young woman, Lily was forced to flee Ireland. Her fiancé was a member of the Black and Tans, the widely hated special force used to suppress revolution in Ireland in the early 1920s. And her father was chief superintendent of B Division in the Dublin Metropolitan Police, a policeman of the old British regime, as Lily says, and therefore an enemy of the new Ireland. This is a family that bears the scars of many of the 20th century's most bloody conflicts, from the First World War to the war in Iraq. It's a family that Barry has written about before. In a long, long way, Lily's brother Willie Dunn goes off to fight in the Great War at the age of 18, and her sister Annie Dunn was the subject of a later eponymous novel. You could tell that there was traumatic debris in all of them, Sebastian tells me in this interview, talking of his own family, on whom several of his characters are based. You could just tell their roots were in chaos and turmoil. I began by asking him what it was about the history of the Dunn family that kept him coming back to write about them. I think it's it's a sort it's I hope a sort of benign hunger for them really, or even a sort of a greed. I'm a fifty-six-year-old man with you know three virtually grown kids, but I still feel an enormous gratitude to my great aunt Annie, about whom I wrote a little novel Annie Dunn, for giving us when we were small. Um, my sister and myself a sense of safety you know we were left with her when my parents went to England and it was the first time I think we, we both was felt safe and this was a woman with a hunchback who was considered to be unmarriageable she was then in her 50s or we thought she was in her 50s actually when I saw her birth certificate she'd taken 14 years off her age but um, uh, as everyone has the right to do but it's it is trying to first of all to have her near me and then Willie her brother even though he'd gone to the first world war which is a bit of, sort of a bit of a prospect going to war for a book it scared me a little bit as, as I think it should and Lily Lily her sister who went to America also quite a prospect from a writing point of view in that you're going into a foreign jurisdiction you might say but the thing that impelled me to go after Lily I think was something I only found out a few years ago because I had been I had written about her in the play called The Steward of Christendom which was about her father the chief superintendent of the Dublin Metropolitan Police and it's about his not only him falling from power after independence of course but also his mind falling asunder or falling and she's in that as a minor role but she's the daughter Dolly it's her nickname who goes away to America and she says in the play because she prefers hats to history and that's why I, th I thought that was a very good reason for leaving but in fact I was told that she had left under sentence of death from the IRA in Dublin with her brother in real life and her fiance 
and they were in Chicago and they were walking along the street apparently and somebody came up and shot her brother dead. Let's say my great uncle. Mm -hmm. This was not ever what the immediate family was told, I've since found out, was that he'd, as an engineer, he'd died in an accident in a reservoir. So that's how they had got around it. But one little strand of the family, a distant cousin, came up to me and told me the real story. Uh, you know, did you know about Jack? So this is a great secret. And that made me want to go after Lily. Why I... Because she hadn't left. You know, because she preferred Hastie's, she should left in terror, which is the big word of our, our own lives. And was it that incident which had catalyzed the novel, the, discovering the truth it, about it, that incident? It, it was that incident and also my beautiful friend Margaret Singh, to whom the Secret Scripture is dedicated, previous novel, who was my great friend. She was in her 80s. She didn't marry a playwright Singh. She married a rugby player Singh, as it happens, who was a nephew or a grand-nephew, maybe, of John Millington Singh. But anyway, she was an English person, an Arnold from England, and she lived near us in the country, in Ballin Glen. And one was one of those magnificent souls. And I, I described her in a little article I wrote about her as the perfect, the perfect argument for Englishness in Ireland. Yeah, which obviously a big question. Uh, and that was Margaret. And Margaret's grandson was in the Irish Guards, this tradition of things in the Irish Guards, and he was in Afghanistan. He came home from his tour and he was full of plans to join the Forestry Commission. And then in some moment of despair, maybe over a girl or over his experiences in Afghanistan, he took his own life. And Margaret herself was very ill at the time. And in her little bedroom in Wicklow, she said to me, she said, why did he take Erskine? I was ready to go. And that deeply affecting, courageous statement uh, was, was the prompt for the book as well, because that's Lily's actual situation as, as the book begins. She's lost her grandson, but he has gone to the first Gulf War, in, and he's an American soldier, you know, with Irish roots. And he's come back full of plans, wanting to join the forestry, and has inexplicably, as it always seems to be at a certain level of explanation, has taken his own life. And once again, you've got a narrator with the longevity to look back over a whole, really over the best part of a century, haven't you? And all the changes they've seen, most especially in their in their own lives, and yes. try to reconstruct it with that sort of faltering memory of, of, of the very old. Yes. I mean, she is um, a young woman compared to Roseanne, who's just about 100 years old in the Secret Scripture. Lily is 89. Also, like Roseanne, she's writing it informally at her own Formica Tom table in the Hamptons, having been retired for 20 years from her job as a cook for quite a wealthy family called the Walhams, a political family. They've given her this little tied cottage and they've been allowed to be there. She's been allowed to be there. And this terrible thing has befallen her. It solves a sort of technical problem that's always been a concern uh, for me and I suppose for a lot of writers is who is telling the book and to whom. If a person is writing it down just for their own sake, because, you know, there's a huge difference between thinking something and then you write it down, it has a different quality. That's for nobody. Roseanne doesn't want readers, as it were, and Lily doesn't require them. She's, she's meeting herself like Dante in, in Dante's Wood as she writes, because she wants to meet herself really before she makes a decision whether or not she shouldn't hasten away a little earlier than her years suggest she will. She wonders, should she take her own life? And that's what the book, that's what 
what the book is basically but the problem is it's a problem is, for instance solved so beautifully by Conrad by having Marlowe the narrator of all the stories Marlowe tells the story of Nostromo to his friends on a boat on the Thames well you know it would take about 17,000 days to do that but it solves the problem of because it gives a sort of energy to the book it's somebody not connected with the events but a little bit knows about them has had some personal doings but not you don't need to know who Marlowe is. It just creates the narrative voice. Rather than the rather redundant, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-dancing, all-singing, divine narrator, you know, uh, like an Elliot or whatever. So these ladies writing for themselves, for no one but themselves, that's how I temporarily solved, you know, it's sort of technical demand. It's interesting when you do that because you realize that you may live a long time, but your feet may be dug most deeply into only a certain period of your own personal history. For instance, the first 30 or 40 years of your life. For, for, for Lily, it's very much up to the point where her second husband disappears. And then, she's, then she wants to get to the door. You know, then she wants to go quickly to the door. Because in a way, that's what she had to tell herself. That's what she wanted to see, was she, where she was responsible in all of that. Because her first, she calls him her husband, they never have a chance to get married. Her first um, fiancé, Tyg Beer, you know, has been in the Black and Tans, which was the most reviled police force in Ireland, even though, strangely enough, Churchill set it up. You might call it one of Churchill's few errors, you know, because I do consider him a great man uh, of that century. But um, So you get that kind of interesting explanation or you can apply it to yourself, you know, what are the mathematics of our time on the earth? You know, which, where are the ones that found, we found it so difficult we could never get X to equal Y? And that's really what she's up to. And then there may be later decades where, where the, the mathematics are simpler. And, you know, the, the plight of her son and of her grandson are, are of a different order. You know, it's multiplication uh, and addition and subtraction rather than the calculus of the mm. early years, which she needs to work out before she, she moves on. I suppose she's, she's maybe to some extent more of an observer the older she gets yes. whereas when she's young she's absolutely in the middle of her own drama yes and I think when she's young she's been very much buffeted and you know she's only 19 as the real woman was indeed when she has to flee to America you know she's only a baby I mean my son and daughter are 18 they're twin and she's sort of a storm bird and she wrestles with the history whatever history that's thrown her thrown at her as history is thrown at us all and yes and I, I do think too that the, the pathology of Lily you know if you were her psychotherapist you might say well she is is suffering to a certain degree from sort of post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. disorder but isn't everybody in that century I mean I was born in 1955 I didn't really have an understanding of what they'd all been through up to that point I mean the thing that explains Sartre and existentialism and history is finished with the love is done and let's throw and Pinter and all that is the incredible century they'd all lived through, even though they were born in 1930, but they had got the taste of it, you know. And if you were my grandfather's generation, born in 1902, and he'd been through the, the rising, the War of Independence, the Irish Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, the, Second, the First World War, the Second World War, the destruction of the Jewish people, everyone had tasted that, and even if it was at a distance, how it must have informed them and racketed their bones and, and affected their dreams. Uh, you know, so 
I, we don't have an access to that. And, and the Dunn family, it has to be said, hit all those sort of terrible events. You know, some, some people are lucky and born between yes. particular war generations, yes. but the Dunn family, you know, kept colliding with those big yes. events in history. Certain peoples have the knack of, of doing that and the luck. But I suppose I'm particularly going after the people who were not spoken of even in their own families, for whatever reason, political reason. I mean, that was a terrifying thing to befall this family, the murder of that man. And in the writing of the other books, you know, I didn't even know about that. It's just, you could tell that there was traumatic debris in all of them. I mean, the people I knew, you know, and in my father and mother, you, you could just tell that their roots were in, were in chaos and turmoil. And it was incredible, actually, to get such an explanation of, of some of the aftermath. And that, that's the reason you try and go back as well. I mean, to get the people back, yes, but also to understand the roots of it. Because the Civil War, which was not taught at school, nevertheless informs all of Irish politics to this day, just as in Greek, the Greek Civil War does in Greece. And, you know, there's two parties in the government, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, or in Parliament. They are the two sides in the Civil War. But if you're not told anything about it, it looks like a tree whose roots are utterly unknown. And you cannot explain the misshapenness of that tree or the storminess of it unless you go back and just look at it in the face. And there's a hunger in Irish people to do that and a sort of necessity because it's part of us being a grown-up country. I mean, we have our present difficulties financially, of course, but these are other matters. I mean, this is a kind of longer matters. This is about banishing. It's, it's like routing out fears that were there because they were born in a sort of darkness and in the silence. But if you can access the darkness and the silence, actually, the fear evaporates too. I mean, you mentioned that the Greek Civil War then, one of the characters, the, the pharmacist is from Greece, yeah. and also there are lots of Italian-Americans, and they too yeah. come from a, a sort of stress-torn island, and it seemed to yeah. me no accident that you had the... You have all these people in the new world in the sort of process of reinventing themselves, yeah. making themselves anew, giving themselves new names, but all this background of yeah. inter-Nissine strife. To be you know, plain and honest about it, that was quite exciting from a writing point of view, because I, I lived in Greece in 1980 for about a year and often gone back and very much in love with it, you know, as an outsider, of course. Although, I have to say, when my father bought his house in Greece in the 80s. He had to pretend our grandmother came from Naxos because he was buying it on Paros. <laughs> so that was the only reason that he was able to buy it. We pretended to be Greek. But yeah, Mr. Efrenides, mm -hmm. as one would say. And the music of Tsitsianis, which I absolutely adore. I mean, it was a kind of almost a wickedness to write those things because, because they're so dear to me and I would so rarely have the opportunity. And another place I, I adore is Sicily. And it's strange that by going to America, actually, I was also going to Greece and Sicily as they are found in America, which is quite an exciting thing to do. And the very mysterious man she marries, eventually Joe Kinderman, who is so mysterious, she doesn't know where he's from. And I don't think even he knows where he's from. And uh, the little seed of that character was some reading I did about crimes in Cleveland in the 30s, I think it was. And there was this very strange man who put, put uh, unguents on his face and murdered a policeman. And then it was discovered he had all this mysterious background that no one knew about. So, and, and crossing state lines and taking another name. You know, even now there's, 
possibly mostly criminal people, and I don't know, in America, who might have 14 aliases, you know, in their court. Mm -hmm. But it is entrancing, isn't it? It is kind of, it's the afterlife of the Jesse James principle. Mm -hmm. One's so admired. I mean, you can admire the James brothers as long as you're not being shot by them on a train or behind a bank. But, you know, these are sort of folk heroes. And the whole thing of America and its folk songs, like Little Birdie. Little birdie, little birdie, why do you fly so high? I mean, these incredible, mysterious songs that suddenly you're writing about to the degree where you think, well, I'm not an American and I don't have an American passport. Although my one of my grandfathers actually was a citizen. I don't, I'm not from there. I don't have any citizenship that a man at the border would recognize, you know, but there is a secret citizenship that maybe specifically Irish people have of America because they've been there, they've worked there. Their DNA is, there's rivers and lakes of your DNA in America. I mean, I have first cousins, uh, you know, in the West. I don't even, ever even met them. And that's very close. And so you kind of begin as you write a book like that, you begin to claim the things you've gone so far home in a wonderfully generous way because you know in the writing of a book you want to meet generous forces you don't want to meet resistance and i mean that that notion of home is an important one in this book isn't it and the cognate idea of nostalgia you know coming from the greek word for for home and this sense of where you know where is home yes. is america can is america capable of becoming home to to lily and her consciousness that Ireland is changing as the decades go by the island that she knew has, has changed beyond all recognition well she you know she points out that we love Ireland because we don't know it even when she's in Ireland she doesn't really understand it she doesn't know it I mean she's so young and she's absolutely certain now that she's left it that it's changed utterly as Yates would say in the decades but nevertheless what she brings of Ireland with her is syntactical she, in the writing of the book, sometimes she breaks out into these recollections of just rooks in the beech tree. There's a sort of litany of them. She's talking about other things, and then suddenly she's recovering something. And sh shall I read that little bit? Oh, please do. And she just said, and it's about her place, their, their place in Wicklow, where her grandfather would have been the steward on the estate there, but this is their little house there that she will, of course, never see again. And I am remembering other things. The bellflowers on the ditches that we could burst between thumb and index finger. I suppose it was Digitalis, friend to the heart attack victim. And the blackthorn blossom in April, a greyish white. And the may blossom itself in May, a different white, a whiter white. And the gorse as yellow as a blackbird's bill. In May also, with its own smell, the smell as near as be damned to the smell of a baby's mouth after drinking its mother's milk, I do believe. And the rooks rowing in the old high trees above Kelcher Beg. Such fractious birds, yet married to the one bird all their life like good Catholics and the wren in its tiny kingdoms in the earth and banks and the wood pigeon offering its one remark over and over and when there were storms out in the Wicklow Sea we heard the seagulls bickering and badgering on the winds and in the dense copses the badgers themselves in the night time choosing among roots and the fox both feared and admired the red renegade coming down to test our hen house for weaknesses in the dark and the nightingales and in stormy spring the fresh arrowheads of the house martins and the swallows could even God tell the difference between. And that she just breaks into that just as a little cargo of things. 
I mean, I think not intending to say any of those things to herself, but just as the Ireland that she's carried with her and, you know, indeed only the end of her life will eradicate. That's what the immigrant carries. And then the children of the immigrant will not have those things because there's, of course, a great silence around reasons for leaving. And, and the children of the children will not in any way have access. They might begin to imagine a completely unreal Ireland. And indeed, probably the people who would have killed Tyke Beer, something like Clan na Gael, who were a Fenian organization in America, who were the main sponsors, much to my astonishment, of the War of Independence in Ireland. They they went very quiet. They, they were operating up to the 30s. They went very quiet then, and then they popped up in the 60s as the people who were connected to the whole Norad uh, enterprise. And then, of course, the Irish politicians and indeed some Irish-American senators and people like Clinton had to make Irish America understand that nothing good could come of this, uh, no unity, no peace, and, you know, that at all to be rethought. So, you know, and it gives me great comfort in a way. It's a sort of recompense for lives like Lily's that there is no one, I think, who will ever leave some place, you know, second-generation Irish-American to go and kill a man like my great-uncle. There's absolutely no reason ever to do that again. I can't help thinking that might be a good thing. Sebastian, I wanted to ask you about the imagery in the book, particularly fire and burning flames, glows. You've got the fire in Chicago in a film. You've got a huge explosion in Cleveland. You've got an explosion of a gun. But you've also got lots of metaphorical burning and glowing. And I just wondered, in your imagination, what was this sort of seam in the book doing? Oh, you know, there's a beautiful question because I'm not quite sure I know the answer. I'm not quite sure I've noticed it. But that almost guarantees that it's there. Um, I was aware of... There's a moment when Lily and Joe, who've been down in New York on their honeymoon, I think, and they wake up in the morning covered in dust. And they don't know what it is, but it's actually the dust from the Oklahoma... Uh, farms that's reached all the way to New York, you know, hundreds of miles, and of course other parts of America, as it did. And Joe Kinderman himself is, she thinks, has been incinerated in a great fire in a gas tank in Cleveland, which is actually a true thing. It was a cylinder that they set up during the Second World War to have extra supply for war, for the war effort, and that that exploded. In, spectacular fashion killed many many people in Cleveland I think what I'm haunted by I suppose my friend Colin McCann who wrote a very great book about 9-11 by not writing about it by writing about previous you know Philip Petit doing his tightrope walk and all the things around that uh, and he's talked about this publicly but I remember him talking about it he said that I think it was his father-in-law arrived at their door, because they live in New York, covered in ashes from the attacks on the World Trade Center, and his little daughter said, Daddy, um, Grandpappy is on fire, or something like that. There's also, there's a scene in The Secret Scripture where Ennis McNulty, who has his own book and another book, has been through the Blitz in Belfast, and he also arrives this predates, you know, talking to Colin. He arrives in Sligo at Roseanne's hut 
also covered in ashes from the blitz, all all greyed by the ashes. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm, sure I'm, sure I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated yeah. that this is a sort of subconscious it thing totally because yeah. it's stu- because the more I noticed it, the more I thought it was a a sort of constructed economy of yeah. of of fire and burning and ash. You know, which was you know, one of the sad truths of writing is the well, you know, you'd like your top head to be in control at a certain level. You know, this stupid bit of you that's overeducated and all the rest. Of it. But of course, it isn't that. The deeper accidental things or subconscious things probably more valuable and you can only you can partly lay claim to them but at another level it's to do with the the very nature of a story itself that it has its own organic integral nature and that you know it's why in a way the author is umbilical cord between the author and the book is cut immediately you finished and it goes off and it's its own self because it's gathered it's the book has gathered stuff from you and how you think about things and I suppose they are they're a little because I, I did notice that a lot about you know other aspects of the book that it was as if unbeknownst I'd gathered this little bag of things of American things which I thought of as sort of American wampum you know a bag of coloured shells that I didn't know I owned so that as I wrote the book I was able to spend them as I went and was very happy to spend them and these I think this sort of imagery was in that bag of wampum a sort of currency because it, because there's no point writing about Lily in America unless at some unsentimental level you love America and you know you mentioned nostalgia which of course is nostosalgos which in Greek means the sickness of returning home that it's a longing that is that is almost physical illness. This is what they're feeling in the Aeneid, and this is what they're feeling in the Iliad or in the Odyssey. You know that it's not an easy, happy feeling. Uh, for instance, we're doing this interview here in Bath, and uh, I lived here 29 years ago, and I went up to the house where I used to live with this beautiful girl. I don't know what sort of life she had since. And it wasn't an easy, oh, this is lovely and everything. It was really quite painful, but in a necessary way. And I, I think, you know, if I was being really honest, if we were talking in secret, I would try to whisper to you how I feel about America, because it's a bit how Lily feels. Even though she says at one rather terrifying moment, terrifying for me anyway, when Bill has taken his life and when her son Ed has had trouble after he comes home from Vietnam, she says, having achieved this sort of troubled Canaan safety for herself, why did I think that I wouldn't have to give something back? Now, as a person with two sons, that's, that's an enormous statement. But that you could have a country. And I do remember, actually, after 9-11, there was the one moment in my life, my grandfather was in the British Army. He wanted me to join the British Army. There was one moment in my life I thought, well, where do I sign up? How do we go and fight to stop this ever happening again? So maybe that's something of the book, something of that in the book, and something of that in the imagery of the book. And I hesitate to say that because I know my natural history, imaginative history, would be about non-combatants and peacefulness. But there are moments, nonetheless, where there is a, a different response in the heart, that mysterious seat of experience. Let me ask you a, a final question question Sebastian which is about coming to conclusions about the past mm. I mean, is it the case that that Lily 
refuses to come to conclusions about her father. There's a, there's a very arresting image mm. at one point in the book of all the records of the, the Dublin Metropolitan Police being affected by water and really becoming a, a great mass that couldn't, I think you say, even the angels couldn't, couldn't take them apart. Is that a kind of refusal to reach judgments about, about her, her father and her own mm. intimate past? It is, but I think it's also a form of what I might say positive despair about our condition of being in the world. I mean, we are an upright ape standing on our back legs trying to reach the higher apples maybe, but we also live in a provisional world that we've constructed provisionally. And we live in a provisional galaxy, in a provisional universe, which we don't even barely understand. We don't understand the deepest innermost fragments of ourselves nor the furthest flung fragments of the created world our works you know look on my works ye mighty in despair we've created many civilizations that are now have sand blowing across them the things we love are impermanent what Lily finds is that there is no such thing as long ago for her when she writes them down there is until she writes them down. Father seems very far along. And in writing about the people that she has loved, despite their history or their politics, she has them back. And I think that that characterizes also my own feeling about these people, that I want them back in spite of... It is as if you're in the condemned self with the man and, or the woman after all the civil things have been done with. The court case the court of history the court of history of the moment when it, history was happening and 50 years later and how we feel all that done with and all you care about is the barefoot suffering creature in the cell and as you sit there thinking you're the one wearing the garb of the chaplain you realise that it is a mirror and, you, and you're looking at yourself Sebastian Barry on Canaan's side is available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. The best way to be sure you never miss another Faber podcast is to sign up for the monthly programme by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.